Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1043, air date March 2nd, 2022. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Iadure. I hope everyone's having a good evening. It is a little after seven. So I have a uh, very nice interview planned with Will Love from Out in New Jersey magazine. I'm going to be talking about innovation um, from the invention of the email, which I did when I was a 14-year-old, to now uh, with Cytoslav, where we're revolutionizing medicine. But I thought it would be great to do this interview uh, with a magazine out of my hometown in New Jersey, because so you'll understand some of the context and we'll probably have a very vibrant conversation. So I'm going to bring in Will. By the way, we'll also be introducing people to our Innovation Institute. I'll be sharing with people Innovation Core, uh, which I'll talk about, which is the institute that we've created, which has been around, <clears throat> believe it or not, for almost 10 years. But we have a program um, that we can also support young people. We have scholarships available for 14 to 18 year old kids, and I'll talk about that. But it, in many ways, is to commemorate um, the opportunity I was given back in New Jersey when I was 14 to give an infrastructure to um, create email. But let me bring in Will right here. Will, are you there? Yes. <clears throat> Thank you for hey, the well, how are you? Good. I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I've been following your work for a bit. And I think you would be a very interesting guest for the magazine. And, you know, there's a lot I want to dive into. Yeah, so let's just start. Okay, so before I get on a, pl a plethora of subjects I'm planning to speak about, I want yeah. to know about growing up in New Jersey. So I was intrigued to learn that. So what was life like growing up in New Jersey and how, you know, it led to your professional career? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Well, a lot of people don't really know. Uh, whenever they have images of New Jersey, they just sort of get this idea that it's like some garbage place. You know, that's what the media promotes it at. But New Jersey yeah. is quite an interesting place. First of all, it has incredible beaches down in South Jersey, but it's actually a uh, very, very diverse uh, place. And But it's really a center of innovation. A lot of colleges are there. And, you know, for me, uh, I moved my parents literally when we left India on my seventh birthday on December 2nd. We landed in New Jersey on December 5th, three days later, and we settled initially in Patterson, New Jersey. Patterson, New Jersey is still considered one of the poorest cities in the United States. And I began as a 14-year-old kid working in, in Newark, New Jersey as a research scientist. So within seven years, my journey was coming to the United States. We settled in Patterson, New Jersey, and then we moved to a place called Clifton, and then to Persephone, and then to Livingston. The reason I give those four towns, if you look at those zip codes of those four towns, um, they go from extremely poor to one of the wealthiest, which was yeah. Livingston, right? Exactly. And my parents, whatever money they earned, they would just keep moving to the better school systems because in the Indian you know, ethos, education is how you get free. And that's why I have this little thing running saying, get educated or be enslaved. This was sort of beaten into us that it was education that really freed you uh, more than anything else. So um, New Jersey was a wonderful place for that. But most importantly, New Jersey, I grew up in working class neighborhoods. And the lessons I learned were from everyday, um, you know, teachers are, uh, you know, I learned how to paint really well how, from a Yugoslavian master painter, learn how to do landscaping from an immigrant from uh, Italy, who was our, you know, landlord, um, 
um, had excellent public school teachers. The 1970s were that period of time. There were still some remnants where the, the teachers were basically getting paid pennies. Most school teachers in New Jersey in the 1970s had like three jobs. My chemistry teacher who ended up winning the presidential award in chemistry was a chemistry teacher and he was a contractor and he was a carpenter. And he put two of his kids through school doing that. So New Jersey was very, very down to earth, uh, everyday people from somewhere to where I came from, India. So that's what I was exposed to in New Jersey. But one of the most profound things was that um, the difference between Patterson and Livingston was quite stark, right? And you, you know, people yeah. look it up. Livingston, New Jersey is where Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner had their homes, okay? But Patterson, New Jersey is, is a very different place, you know, economically, et cetera. So my journey sort of gave me this experience of all these different sort of economic um, classes plus working class people who had a tremendous amount of integrity. But when I was 14, 13, I got the opportunity to go work at New York University. Actually, actually was accepted, 40 students were accepted across the country to actually learn computer science in high school. And I was one of those kids and my mom would drop me off in New Jersey at the Newark Path Station. And as a 14 year old, I would take that train into, into the heart of Washington Square in New York. Now, if you know Washington Square in New York in 1978, it was just crime and drugs. As I would walk through, people would try to sell you all sorts of things, you know? And remember my first day in New York, I saw three guys smashing out of a jewelry store. They just st stolen something and cops were running around. But that was the chaos between New Jersey and New York at that time. But my parents were pretty interesting. I think most parents would not even let their kids out these days. Um, to do anything like that. But as a 14 year old, I was taking the train from New Jersey right into the heart of Newark. Interesting thing was when I was, when I used to take that train, there was this big black guy who was watching me and he was concerned for me and he ended up becoming my bodyguard and a very, very good family friend. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was, and he worked in a bronze factory doing mold, moldings, you know, I mean, it was quite yeah. extraordinary. So here I would go to NYU and then he would take me to his factory and I would see them literally pour like lightning molten bronze. So it was a, it was a great, great place to grow up in. But after I finished that course in NYU, I started, I got a full-time job at what is now known as Rutgers university in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. And the, because I had a very good independent studies teacher, she fought with the administration at the school and changed the rules so this 14 year old kid could, while he was in high school, have a full-time job as a research science fellow in Newark. So it was quite incredible. And in that small medical college at that time in Newark, I was given the opportunity to use all sorts of computers. I mean, most computers would be, you know, massive mainframes. And I started doing medical research in why babies were dying for, uh, in their sleep because I had a deep interest in medicine growing up in India, watching my grandmother who was a traditional healer. So I was uh, writing algorithms, what you would call AI algorithms, pattern recognition algorithms, where if you could watch the sleep pattern of a baby, could you predict when it's breathing would stop? It's called an apnea and that's called SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. So I was given this great opportunity as a young kid to write these algorithms. In fact, many years later, I presented a paper in Finland and at the leading biomedical conference but while I was at that university, if you've been to Newark and you've been to Rutgers there, 
or if you were there in those days, most universities um, were very, very segregated on multiple levels. Men and women had very different jobs, looked differently, you know, very clear the, the rules. Women could only in those days have three jobs. They could be a nurse, they could be a teacher, a housewife, or what, or a secretary. So in this medical school, um, every office, you know, was either um, the office of a scientist, a medical researcher, or a doctor. And in those offices, they always had someone called a secretary. And those offices there were thousands of offices, and they used to be connected by these pneumatic tubes. And they used to have these little tubes that you would send around to send your mail around. Okay. Um, and so in those days, how did communication take place? They didn't have really the internet. They didn't really have cell phones. They didn't really have uh, social, social media. They had two things, the physical hardwired phone and something called the interoffice mail system. The interoffice mail system was a system where every secretary on their desktop had something called a typewriter and something called paper and something called carbon paper and paper clips um, and the inbox, a physical box, the outbox, the drafts folder, a big file steel case folder. So this was the office desktop that this secretary owned. So if you can just think about that, this was physical instruments and every secretary had one of these desktops. And when communication needed to take place was typically initiated by a man who was a doctor or a medical researcher or a scientist in a white lab coat. He would dictate a letter to the secretary saying, blah, 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 take a note, dear Dr. Blah, you know, here's a resume of someone I'd like you to consider, right? And maybe he would say, you know, put a carbon copy to the HR person, blind carbon copy someone else, right? And the person physically would do this. Take a piece of paper, start typing. If it was a carbon copy, you'd literally take the piece of paper, a piece of carbon paper, another piece of paper, and that was a CC, carbon copy, okay? You would then attach someone's resume. You would put it in the drafts folder. The bo your boss would come back and redline it. You would retype it. Then it would go in the outbox. Someone would pick it up, put it into one of these envelopes, put it in one of those pneumatic things that would get sent around. Or you may get stuff in the inbox. Or you may do registered mail, blind carbon copy. So all of these things is how the office worked. Now, I was asked to convert this entire system to the electronic form, which had never been done before on the planet Earth. And the doctors were very demeaning to these secretaries at that time, or the scientists, because who used computers in those days? It was white men with lab coats. The concept of a secretary ever touching the keyboard was unheard of because you needed to know complex commands, you needed to know computers. You know, in those days, you could send simple, short text messages. That was about it. But that's not email, okay? So I was asked to convert this entire inner office mail system to the electronic version. And I was quite excited. The doctors would come over to me and they'd say, why are you doing this? This is useless. You know, we'd just like to dictate to our secretaries. You're gonna make us all become secretaries now. So anyway, I wrote 50,000 lines of software code and I had to get every one of those features or the secretaries weren't gonna leave their typewriter to go to the keyboard. The inbox had to be there, the outbox had to be there, blind carbon copy, the to, the from, the subject, the CC, registered mail, the attachments, everything you see today. Anyway, so I, I wrote 50,000 lines of code 
named that system a term that had also never been used in the English language called email. And I came up with five characters because the operating system only allowed five characters. It was not an obvious term in 1978. And wrote the user's manual for email, had everyone using it all over the university for email. And um, when I came to MIT, I, I was accepted MIT 1981. The front page of MIT featured three kids and I was one of them for inventing something of note. The president of MIT invited me to his home that year and he said, you know, it's too bad the Supreme Court doesn't recognize software patents. You can patent software. The legislatures didn't even know what software was. They thought it was written stuff, but they had changed the law in 1980 to allow you to use copyright law to protect software inventions. And the president of MIT told me that. So I wrote away for the copyright notice, filled it out. My parents weren't lawyers like Bill Gates's parents. Yeah. And on August 30th, 1982, I was issued the first United States copyright recognizing me as the inventor of email. So named it email, wrote all the code, have edit feature. So I invented email as a 14 year old kid. Now the problem was I never talked about it. Never came out of the closet with that. Okay. It was only in 2011 when my mom was dying of a horrible disease. She in a beautiful suitcase had saved all of those artifacts, the code, the tapes, everything. And she, she uh, uh, presented that to me and uh, a professor at Emerson College looked at it and he said, wow, you invented email. He called his friend at Time Magazine who wrote an article called The Man Who Invented Email. And it's out there, November 11th, 2011. No one said anything at that point. Then the Smithsonian Museum contacted me. They were very excited. I donated all my stuff to them. It was a big honoring ceremony. And on February 16th, 2012, a article was written in the Washington Post said, Dr. Shiva Iadre honored as the inventor of email. Now you would think this would be an occasion for celebration. Yeah, exactly. But instead what happened was a white liberal elite academic professors, who are the real racists, by the way, who considered this like a new skull was found in Africa. How could this be? During the 35 years I didn't promote it, they had promoted a guy who looked like a nerd who actually didn't invent email. He used the at symbol to attach text to the bottom of uh, a blog post. You could talk about it, okay? A caveman version of Reddit. And that individual during those 30 years had been promoted by a missile defense company who had acquired the company that he worked at as the inventor of email where they use the out logo because they were using that to you know, win military contracts when they didn't invent email. So when this went to the Smithsonian, it was like a bomb went off. And the vitriol, the anger, the racism, the, the hatred that how dare this dark-skinned Indian guy, a 14-year-old guy, ever claim he invented email. I was called an asshole and a dick and a fraud. While I, was, while I have four degrees from MIT, I've invented many other things, never even wanted fame. And, and it would, it was interesting because the level of abuse, I was teaching a class at MIT while running a company that I endured was unbelievable. People would make jokes. Ah, ha, ha. You said you invented email, Al Gore, or thousands of calls came to MIT saying, how dare this guy say he invented email? And why was this anger there when the facts are so obvious? It's not even a controversy. You see people going on Wikipedia, attacking my page and et cetera. Anyway, 
It took four yeah. years for me to find a lawyer to sue the media company who called me a fraud and we ended up winning. We drove them into bankruptcy. And the important part of that is the facts are so obvious. I named it email, wrote all the code, have the copyright. Now, maybe if I was a white guy with blue eyes and my name was Einstein, maybe that's what it has to be, and blonde hair, this would be everywhere. And the level of discrimination here goes very deep. It's not only I was a dark-skinned Indian guy, but I did it when I was 14, did it in Newark, New Jersey, before I came to MIT. But when I was at MIT and onward, I'm on the front page of many things, have won many awards because I had the MIT brand. But how dare this guy say that he invented email before he came to MIT? You see, this is a real issue. Well, it's a, it, it seems like it boils down to business, too. It they boils down to the fact, I think you nailed it, Will, is that a, a multi-billion dollar brand called Raytheon, which is right down the street over here, which is a missile defense company. Missile sales were tanking in 2007. They had bought another company to do cybersecurity. They needed that branding as though they had invented email. You see, that was their brand. And I think they had made about $270 million just selling cyber. So imagine if you're filing for a government contract and you say, oh, we're the guys who invented email. We'll have, be able to protect your email. It's a no brainer. It's a no brainer for them. Yeah. So yeah, so it's the military industrial academic complex. The same thing happened to Philo Farnsworth, 14-year-old kid who invented TV. It took him 60 years. He invented it in a small farm in Idaho, very similar conditions, a loving family, a mentor, and infrastructure, which is where real innovation comes from. Innovation does not come from the military-industrial academic complex. It comes from those three environments, and that's what I had in New Jersey, a loving family, a, a, a mentor who took me in, and then I had access to some infrastructure in a small medical college. So this is probably one of the most important things, you know, from a, if you want to really talk about uh, real discrimination is the fact that we have made people think that you have to look and feel and go to these places and then you're a nerd and then you're an innovator. That you surely could not invent email in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. You surely could not do it as a 14-year-old kid. You surely could not do it as a dark-skinned immigrant in Newark. But surely Mozart can write symphonies. That's cool. A white guy who can write symphonies when he's six. So there's a lot of very interesting lessons, but the fundamental issue was that this was done outside of the bastions of the military industrial complex. And by the way, a it was a Michigan mechanic who created the windshield wiper system which is called automatic controls and two MIT professors actually stole his invention. The case of Philo Farnsworth is a young kid invented TV. RCA came into his home, stole everything and started manufacturing because they had the capability. It took him 19 years to win that lawsuit and he only had one year of patent life left. He died in an alcoholic, it took 60 years for the United States Congress to now recognize, if you go to the Congress, there's a statue as the inventor of email. Uh, inventor of TV, sorry. But these are very profound stories because I've had the opportunity to experience the innovation world before I came to MIT and then also while at MIT. But my journey really started, you know, in New Jersey. I think that's the most important thing. If, if it wasn't for New Jersey, if it wasn't for the conditions I had, I probably would not have, you know, done many other things. So, 
that's really the history. And then I came to MIT, right? And went in and out, did a bunch of degrees, but my interest was always in medicine. So I've innovated, you know, I've written lots of papers in medicine and a lot of medical research. Uh, we just published a paper in the journal Cancers, uh, where we have now created this technology that came out of my PhD called Cytosol. And Cytosol is a revolutionary platform, probably equal or more important than email, that, will, that allows us to eliminate the need for animal testing, use the computer to mathematically model diseases, and then using that, imagine modeling a disease on the computer, then testing different medicines or herbs on the computer. So- That's fascinating. Yeah, so that's what we've done. In fact, we have a product here called MV25, which we were always helping other companies do. Yeah. But about two years ago, we said, why don't we eat our own dog food? So we literally modeled all the molecular pathways of pain and inflammation, mathematically modeled it, and went through trillions of combinations until we discovered this. Um, and I may, I'll, if you want to hear about it, I'll play a little ad for you on it. But that'll give you an understanding of the power of Cytosol, the power of what it can do. But all of that journey came from Newark, New Jersey for me where I was doing medical research, building a platform. Cytosol is a medical platform. That's what it is for innovation, but it's a communications platform too. I think it's very innovative. And I give you kudos because that's a lot to deal with in terms of having something that you worked so hard for essentially stolen from you, or at least robbed from you in terms of getting credit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it, the the reality is um, they were never expecting me to fight back. They thought I would be a good Indian, you see. And the thing that really bothered them in that entire exercise was why is this guy standing up? Because and this is one of the areas of race. The real racism is taking people and putting them in little boxes. Yeah, absolutely, and that's something right? I want so, to. So if you if you are a blonde woman and you're attractive, then you must behave like this. If you're an Indian guy, then you must tilt your head left to right and be humble and not take it on the chin. If someone says you're a fraud, you didn't invent email, that's okay. You're not supposed to defend, you're supposed to be a Gandhi, you see? Um, if you're an African-American, you're supposed to behave like this, right? And so on. If in order to be smart, you must have a beard and wear glasses and be hunched over and talk with a high nasally voice. And why do I say this? Because I used to literally see people when they came as freshmen at MIT, normal sounding people, within six months after being there, you would see these kids' voices change, mannerisms change, because some of these quote unquote nerd professors would talk like that, as though that was the etiquette for being intelligent. So almost like a casting call. And here, I grew up in New Jersey. We were on division, you know, the number one division. Uh, I was a center halfback, soccer, baseball, right? I pitched. Chris Christie was our catcher, right? Who became the governor of New Jersey. But the concept of someone being an athlete and this and that, that's not supposed to be allowed. The media wants to pigeonhole everyone, keep you in that pigeonhole, whatever that may be. And then if you stay in that pigeonhole, you're good. So when I was at MIT, I won all these awards, was, was on the front page for inventing many things. But when I said email was invented in Newark, New Jersey, that throws a wrench in the MIT concept, right? Because that goes against 
the theory that you have to go to MIT and then you can be a great inventor, you know? Well, that's what I was thinking all along when you were telling the story was that MIT's name wasn't attached to your creation. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what I ended up doing was about in 2012, um, when I went through this journey, I realized there's a lot of 14 through 18 year olds. In fact, I think that age is a period when there's a lot of intelligence or radicalism or people, because when you're young, you don't think anything's not impossible. For example, in that medical college, when I was creating that system, I found out many years later, one of the guys was attacking me, a guy called David Crocker. I call him David Crock of shit. This guy, many years later, was attacking me. He said, oh, he didn't invent. By the way, whenever they want to take away your credit, they said, oh, no one person can do that. It was done in a collaboration. Bullshit. I actually did invent email single-handedly. Okay. There was no freaking collaboration. That's if you'll find out that's one of the ways that the elites try to diminish someone. So anyway, he, when he was attacking me, he forgot in 1977, he had written an article which said at this time, no, um, uh, it basically said it is impossible to create the electronic version of the inner office mail system. Okay. And we found that article, he, he freaked out. So you see, when you're young, you don't think anything's impossible, but these old white guys in lab coats thought, oh, creating email was impossible in 1977 because I was doing so many, they were just like trying to send little telegraph messages. So that's, what's important that, so several years ago, when I realized that there's a lot of very smart kids out there, um, I created, and everyone listening, if you have young kids, you may want to consider this. I created an organization called Innovation Court, say it's a 501c3. I actually mentor eight to five to eight kids every year. I give them about a thousand dollars. It's not a lot, um, but people can go. It's called Innovation Core, I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O and courts.org. Let me put it here. Maybe I'll put it right here. Um, and if you want to, and, and what I did, um, when I launched this, um, I will, I went back to, uh, Newark and I launched it there in New Jersey. And what you see here is it's a, it's a, um, it's a, uh, you can apply here and the application process is pretty simple. We're looking for young kids, 14 through 18, who act, they don't have to be nerds working in a lab, but they have to talk about, did they, t did they create something? Did they actually get a customer? What problem did they solve? Are there direct competitors? You know, uh, what's the, uh, what stage of the project are they in? But my goal is to really find uh, and support people who are actually taking risks. Do they take an idea and do they actually even get one, cu one customer? Even if the customer hated them, that's okay. Because when you build something and you get feedback, that's when you learn. It's better off building something not perfect, but getting a customer. So that's what we're giving credit to. So the, anyone listening out there, March, uh, end of, end of this month, uh, uh, March 31st, 2022 is when the application ends, but it's essentially, uh, for anyone who wants to apply 14 through 18 year olds, and you get a thousand bucks. Um, I mentor you throughout the year and you get access to, we also have a book called the seven secrets of innovation. We also have a curriculum that we have an online curriculum where we teach people what are the seven secrets of innovation. But the bottom line is innovation is in everyone's DNA. You don't have to go to MIT. You don't have to go to Stanford. You don't have to go to these places. In fact, in retrospect, I realized that many of these large institutions 
actually are stealing kids from the public school systems who work their butt off and just putting their brand on it, you know? So it's not like the universities really do a lot anymore. You know, by the time kids come to the university, they're already, you know, getting the best kids who work hard. Yeah. Who, and, yeah. and they just give them their brand, if you, if you know what I'm saying. No, so, it is. It's a, it's a business at the end of the day, because if a kid right. into the university as, you know, an exceptional student, they've already worked for that. So they just, it's almost like a barter situation. They need that university's name to get their career going. And the university needs them to get more students like them to attend. So at the end of the day, I just feel like the whole higher education system is a business. It is. So what we're trying to do is, you know, um, one of the key things we're trying to do is, you know, we've um, on vashiva.com, we've created an entire environment now where our goal is to uh, open people up to the opportunity that one of the most important things that anyone can learn in the world is what I call the science of systems. So there is a foundational education that comes even to me, even before reading, writing and arithmetic, that's learning the foundations of systems. So what, um, what I've done is I've taken the 50 years of knowledge and creating systems to actually make it very, very accessible for anyone. So if I go here, if people go to the website here, vashiva.com, you'll see there's a bunch of videos here. One video is called The Journey to Systems. Um, another video is called Why You Must Learn the Science of Systems. And then what you get as a part of the Truth Freedom and Health movement. But one of the things we recently launched, Will, and these are just in, I mean, all of these have been running, but we started these institutes. So someone learns the science of systems, and then they can go join one of these institutes. Someone may be interested in open science. Someone may be interested in becoming a systems health educator, whole, lear, essentially learning a whole different way to look at the body as a system. Or maybe they want to support election systems or innovation or learn how to do complex art and visualization um, or be become a member of the Advanced Media Institute where they learn how to become a journalist on the ground or citizens training. So if you go to, for example, the Open Science Institute, uh, we are literally, these are different research projects we're going on and people can literally, it's science for the people by the people. So using the Cytosoft technology, people can actually come up with a research question. And then we let them be essentially research directors. They can literally go say, hey, I wanna find out that we have a project going on what's in the jab, right? And people are supporting it. So, or let's say someone wants to figure out, hey, what are the right ingredients? Or, you know, my father is being given this drug. Is it the right one? Are there side effects? So we can literally use Cytosoft to answer these questions. And from our view, we've been helping the large companies. Now we wanna make it accessible to people. So the reciprocity model is you go raise the funding, we'll do the work, but we're gonna do the work at one one hundredth of the cost and the time that the big you know, organizations do it. And the Cytosoft technology has been published in the leading journals. Universities actually come to us to use our technology so we can do the work of 20 or 30 graduate students. So we've, we've literally opened up Cytosoft, but we're, uh, our movement now is literally creating an environment for the individual to A, learn the science of systems, which is by the way, what all the elites learn. If you don't understand the foundations of systems science, in the modern world, it's like you have bows and arrows and the enemy has, you know, nuclear weapons. So that's why, you know, it's about getting educated. And, and that's through the science of systems. Step one.
once you learn the science of systems, we've also built an online community, independent of big tech. You can interact with other people. Then you can become an activist. We teach you how to do that. You can, you know, uh, deliver solutions. So we have essentially have all these arsenal of solutions that people can now say, hey, I think something's wrong in my city or my county with the audit. Well, we give them tools to go do audits. Okay. We teach people how you can actually be a citizen journalist. We're teaching people how you can actually understand the body as a system, essentially become your own doctor, which is what Hippocrates said we're all supposed to do. In fact, we have many medical doctors and nurses who go through our training and we certify them because doctors and medical healers don't learn the body as a system, they learn, learn it as parts. So everything begins with the science of systems. I think this is very educational and something that people need today. Yeah. So, yeah, I, so I think to your audience, I think the key message is that, you know, the guy who invented emails revolutionizing medicine. But the other part of that is I want to teach people the science of systems because it is actually the knowledge base that will enable people to get to truth, freedom and health. Without this knowledge base, it's all just bullshitting people. You're just sort of being an activist. You're trying to fight, but you really don't have the real tools to fight. The science of systems is a tools to fight for a better world. It's a tool to fight for your better body, your better health, understanding everything in and around you. So it all begins with the science of systems. Wow. So now I have even more questions than I originally did, but let me let me do a. You mind if I just do a quick break here? No, that's fine. Yeah, I'm because I remember. I so I want to do a. So one of the things that. Um, so what would you like? You know, one is I can play you a video of the journey to systems. I can play a video of Cytosol. I can play you a video of one of the products we've created with Cytosol, MB25. Which one would you like to hear about? The product, MB25. Okay. Let me uh, play that. So, so essentially the backdrop in it is in 2003, I created this technology to model essentially biomolecular pathways on the computer. We helped a lot of different companies. We've helped uh, uh, major you know, companies out there. And then about two years ago, we said, wait a minute, we now have all these mathematical models. Why don't we go after pain and inflammation? Could we create a product that could essentially challenge some of these other products? But, uh, you know, come from natural ingredients, okay? And help alleviate discomfort and pain. And that's, so we, we, we created that. So let me play, play that for you right here. I think I should be able to play this. Who would have ever thought someone like me would invent email and create Cytosol to revolutionize health for personalized and precision medicine, a system for delivering the... One second, that's the Cytosol one. Let me just, let me play, let me play... Um, this is MB25. Millions of people suffer every day from painful discomfort and swelling, but most pain medications come with harsh side effects, and many alternative supplements have little scientific backing. That's why we at Cytosolve created MV25. MV25 was formulated using the Cytosolve Computational Systems Biology Platform, a technology for precision and personalized health invented by Dr. Shiva during his doctoral research at MIT. 
This formulation is the result of computing trillions of potential combinations of biomolecular interactions, derived from thousands of peer-reviewed scientific papers published across four decades by 68 research institutions to discover an optimal synergy of compounds that downregulate biomarkers of discomfort and normal swelling. Hi, I'm Barbara Ann. My hands would cramp up so that I couldn't hold cards or knit or crochet. And they would go like that. Not have to use this when I played cards with my grandkids. And I'd start taking that MP25. After a bit, I was able to hold cards in my hand. Very, very little cramping, hardly at all anymore. MV25. Hi, my name is Sandy. I'm a Taekwondo instructor. I tore my ACL during Taekwondo. I had a lot of pain and limited mobility. I've been taking the MV25 for about six months now. After the first week, I noticed a big difference. After the second week, almost literally no pain. My name is Jeremy and I suffer from a lower back problem. Hurt my back at work years ago and I can go to the chiropractor, do all kinds of different things and nothing seems to help. And I decided to try MV25. I didn't notice a difference immediately, but within a few days, the pain went away and it stayed away. I've continued to take it. And even when I do things that I shouldn't do, it seems to go away a lot quicker than it ever did before. MV25 is certified clean, 100% non-GMO, made in America and GMP certified for good manufacturing practices. MV25 is Cytosolve optimized which means that this formula has been engineered to maximize benefits while minimizing toxicity based on current research curated by Cytosolve. As the science advances, so will this formulation. This is our promise. Order online at mv25.life. Consult your doctor before taking any supplement or medication and use as directed. MV25. Okay, well, I hope that it gave you an idea. So that's a product that we created using Cytosolve. And yeah, that's a very interesting product. Um, I want to try it out myself because I suffer um, from back pain. I've suffered from it since a boxing incident that I was in like eight years ago. And the only thing that works is like routine chiropractic treatment. But I feel like that's something that if I don't keep up with, you know, um, the pain continues. So, yeah. But, but the interesting thing here is the science is changing. And one of the opportunities we have with this technology is as new science comes out, we can keep testing new things, right? And in the traditional systems of medicine, they wouldn't even give you one herb or one compound. They would always do mixing. It's called yeah. alchemy. So the real art. So in many ways, medicine is an information science, but it's also an art. So what Cytosol does, it, it helps us bring that together. We're modeling the molecular pathways and then we're figuring out combinations. So it's, you know, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, right? Or the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? So that's what we're finding. That's, that's a concept called synergy. And how, how long has this product, how, how long have you had this product available? I know it's new. Uh, it's been out for about a year now. Okay. But a, a, less than a year. And the critical thing about it is that both of the ingredients that are coming from, they're coming from natural ingredients, flavonoids. 
the whole area of bioflavonoids in nature is not fully appreciated. You know, the stuff in the skin of fruits, right? Uh, let's say on the skin of a lemon or uh, vegetables. The active components in there uh, are very, very powerful. That's why in traditional systems of medicine, they would use a mortar and pestle, right? They would grind these things. What, what they were doing was refining them to get the critical ingredients that you could use. So that's essentially what we've done. We've done alchemy here using cytosol as an engine. Um, I know when you had spoken to Crystal earlier, uh, I mean, I don't know how much time we have, but we could talk about a number of topics if it in involves, you know, some of the uh, medical areas that you may be interested in, but it's really, um, you know, I, I have, a, I think of another about 15 minutes. It's up to you. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I have mean, we can go longer. I mean, we can go longer. It's fine. Yeah, no, I, I do have a lot of questions. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I guess to sort of switch gears a little bit, um, I, I want to discuss vaccines. It's a very controversial, to controversial topic now. Um, I feel like people are not seeing the subject clearly. They're viewing people who are hesitant to get COVID vaccines as being anti-vax, which is really not the case. I'm noticing a lot of people, including myself, that are apprehensive with the COVID vaccine aren't necessarily anti-vaccine per se. They're just cautious because of the fact that this is um, an entirely different way of producing vaccines with mRNA, et cetera. Um, not to mention the growing number of reactions that people are having to it. So I just wanna say, I just wanna ask you, what are your thoughts on the COVID vaccine and vaccines collectively? Do you feel like they're not as regulated as standard medication. So that's why they're being pushed now. Um, but you, you know, you could answer that. Yeah. So back in 2019, so let me tell you, so first of all, the discussion here, you know, science isn't, you know, it broadly, um, what's interesting with scientific facts is that what's or engineering facts it's really really important if you're a scientist or an engineer to do the noble duty of science and engineering which is to tell the truth but to tell it at the right time okay not after the fact do you follow what i'm saying so let, let me explain yeah. this. So if you're an engineer and you knew the space shuttles the o-rings were going to blow up and they were never tested for extremely cold temperatures it would be important for you to tell and take the heat and be a real hero before the space shuttle took off. And drum beat, put your ass on the line, right? Uh, make a sacrifice, you may lose your job. And that's what happened with a guy called Alan McDonald. He, uh, he was a guy who was a director at Morton Thiokol and he said, wait a minute, the O-rings were never tested for these extremely cold temperatures. You know, I cannot sign off on the launch. NASA put him under pressure, his management did, he was demoted, but he still stood his ground. He just died about a month ago, uh, about a year ago. And he said, the most important thing in life is to say the right thing at the right time to the right people. Well, in 2019, I was speaking at the National Science Foundation. I said, look, and I gave a talk on beyond vax and anti-vax, the need for precision and personalized medicine, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. It was a room full of 200 people. I was invited to be the main speaker. It was called a prestige lecture at NSF. 
And I went through the, I have a paper that people can get on our shop. It's called the modern science of the immune system. And I said, look, the immune system idea that's used to create modern vaccines is based on a 1915 model, 1.5. But the reality is that the immune system understanding is far more complex. It's a much more complex system. And I said, the concept of giving everyone the same intervention makes no sense. No one had a problem with that. When Fauci started doing this stuff in January, it was, I was a lone guy out there who first exposed him. We started the Fire Fauci campaign. I didn't see Robert Malone there. I didn't see Robert Kennedy attacking him then. I didn't see any of these doctors, even though they knew it was wrong. It wasn't fashionable then to attack Fauci. But I knew he was a complete fraud because I have a PhD in biological engineering. I've studied this stuff and I know the military academic complex where Fauci's been a bureaucrat for how many ever years, 40, 50 years. He controls the flow of money. And I've always maintained my own independence, not like most of the people in academia. So I was able to go at him and expose him. So, and I base it on a fundamental notion. It's, it's about precision medicine. It's not about vaccines or antivax. It's about what's the right medicine for the right person at the right time. Well, it's only now three months ago, these guys were like Robert Malone and six months, these doctors come out. Well, you're too little too late. You're not a hero. You already have 80, 90% of people, you know, jabbed, and now you're coming out. So you want to be the guy who says, you know, I was with pharma and you want to be the hero. No, you don't get it that way. And this is what we need to understand. There are people that do not say the right thing at the right time. They put their hand up, they watch which way the wind blows. And if the wind is blowing this way, you know, Tucker Carlson does this. He's a grifter. He's a master grifter. Joe Rogan does this another master grifter, okay? In 2014 and 15, I had just written five scientific papers clearly showing that genetically engineered foods disrupt biomolecular pathways at the plant level and glutathione levels will go up, formaldehyde will come up. Many people called Rogan and said, you should have Dr. Shiva on. At that time, he had a guy called Kevin Folta on, who is a Fauci of GMOs promoting him. All right. And so he was pro GMO then. I don't care what he says. He's very clever trying to act as though he's some impartial guy bullshit. He was promoting Folta. And then he watched which way the wind was blowing. And he noticed that on September, October, you know, his sales were sort of flat on Spotify. Then he says he's against the vaccine mandates. Well, if you drew a curve about how many people got vaccinated, and then when he's coming and saying this, well, you're a little bit too little too late, you know? And, and then he tries to act as though the dialectic of him and him and uh, Neil Young. I mean, yeah. I know Neil Young. I, I, I did an event with him many years ago on the against the GMOs. And in retrospect, Neil Young was pushing out an album uh, against Monsanto. So you see, these people are entertainers. They're not thought leaders. So Neil Young was against GMOs, but he was pushing an album, and then he became pro-vax. Joe Rogan at the time was pro-GMO, and now he's quote-unquote anti-vax, okay? My point is that the reason I'm answering this question is that had in January of 2020, these so-called experts who now are coming up two years, 
ago, we wouldn't have had this issue. So when it comes to changing the world, it's about saying the right thing at the right time. That's true courage and true heroism. Not after the fact, watching which way the wind blows, because now you want to be an entertainer and you want, now it's, now it's cool to talk, to be against vaccine mandates, you see? So when it comes to this issue, you know, I've, I've never taken a flu shot or any of this stuff ever in my life, right? My view is that if you look at the immune system, it's a very complex system. Every system in the universe is meant to undergo resilience training, which is you're supposed to expose it to stress. And then based on that exposure to stress, the system will respond and get stronger. You want to get strong, go lift weights. You may get sore, your body strengthens. We're supposed to be exposing people when they're at a young age to many different dust, frankly, or dirt and all this stuff, and your body will respond. Now we're keeping all of our kids in these little sterile homes. So isolated, yeah. So isolated, don't expose them. So the immune system never has a chance to get smacked and come back. So it's becoming essentially a weakened immune system. Now in that weakened, so imagine the extreme case, you bring up a kid in a bubble chamber. He's never allowed to go out. And then one day he leaves and he experiences all this dust. He's probably going to get destroyed. So a kid like that, you may have to titrate him, right? Slow dose him. Otherwise, he's going to freak out. If you look at polio, for example, prior to 1905, polio was in everyone's water. Everyone got polio. But you were exposed to it at a young age before two years old. And when you got exposed to it before two years old, it was a... All you got was diarrhea, your body's immune system built when you were getting breastfed and you were fine. But when hygiene came in a weird way, when we isolated people from dirty water, then later in life, people get exposed to the polio virus and then it has a much more uh, dangerous effect, okay? Because the body was never exposed to it. So it didn't have a chance to know how to modulate itself. And by the way, it is not a virus that kills you. Okay. What kills you is not the virus. It's your body's overreaction to the immune response generated by that exogenous antigen. Okay. And every virus has a particular place. By the way, I did, I think I did video after video after video in November, 2019 and in early 2020. Okay. And when I did these videos, I got a call from a chief economist at the white house. He said, Dr. Sheep, I saw your video. Trump is not listening to us. He's blindly following Fauci. We're headed into an economic disaster. Please do more videos. And that's when I started educating people. You know, I think there's a vitamin D video I did, I think back in February of 2020, which got, I think, like 50 million views, which was taken down. Um, so the issue is what I feel good about was we did the right thing at the right time. So one of the things we teach in our system science course is that what system science teaches us is that if you want to achieve a goal, you have to put the right inputs in it to your body, et cetera. But you also have to understand there are disturbances that come on our way. So if we want truth, freedom and health, there are people who oppose that. And the biggest people get in our way is not the Fauci's, but it's the not so obvious establishment will. The okay. people who claim they want to help us. The people who run the Breast Cancer Foundation, the people who run Children's Health Defense Fund, the Robert Kennedys, the people, uh, the Donald Trumps, who claim he wants to help us but didn't do what he, he didn't lock Hillary up, he didn't do. Yeah, that's another thing that I wanted to talk about you. I know people are 
a lot of people who are opposed to these mandates, whether it be vaccine or mask, et cetera, are very pro-Trump. And while I appreciate the fact that, you know, Trump wants people to have the choice, I also feel Trump was the one that pushed the vaccines from the get-go. So if these mRNA vaccines specifically, so if people do start having adverse reactions from them in the coming years and, you know, they discover that it, it's been causing more harm than good to all these millions of people who've gotten the shot already, well, it's essentially Trump's fault because he was the biggest pusher of this under the guise that it would reopen the economy. So what are your thoughts about that? Because a lot of people say now that, oh, if you're anti-vaccine, you're, an you're a Trumper, when I don't, it doesn't really make sense to me because Trump was the one who pushed the whole vaccine initiative from the get-go, correct? I mean- Yeah, look, this is what's happened. The everyday people, working people want truth, freedom, and help, okay? What's happened is the establishment in power does something very, very clever. And listen to this very carefully. They create, the biggest disturbance they create, the distraction is they create the dialectic in any situation. They create the pro and the anti. So we get lost in the pro and the anti discourse versus looking at what the real solution is. So Trump comes in, I'm gonna have a long discussion on Trump, but Trump came in um, under the guise of locking up Hillary, you know, getting rid of the swamp and so on, right? But he brought in the biggest swamp creatures of the planet. Bolton, you know, Rex Tillerson, you can go down the list, okay? He didn't do anything to Fauci, okay? He accelerated Operation Warp Speed, all right? Um, so these people in power are extremely clever, and this is what is hard for people to understand. They are so clever. Words don't mean anything to them. It's all about grifting. Oh, the polls are, I, I'm gonna say this, but I'm gonna say it like this. And I'm gonna couch it like this so I can still keep my audience. So it's like they get an audience and they wanna grow that audience and they don't wanna lose that audience. So they're, they're constantly doing this manipulation. They're master snake oil marketers. They don't give a fuck about you. That's what people need to understand. So, any side will say what it needs to say to keep its audience. And they have a market. They have a target that they created. And it's like consumer marketing. So if you look at the origin of all of this, go back to 2008, there was another guy called Obama. By the way, 50 to 60% of Trumpers voted for Obama. Which is fascinating because it seems like they bought into the same marketing plan. Change. Right. So, so, so Obama comes in a black guy out of nowhere and they push him as hope and change. And he was gonna, you know, fight for working people. What does he do at the end of the day? He prints 4.2, trillion dollars to save Goldman Sachs, the big banks. That's what he did in that White House meeting that, you know, midnight. So he should have let the big banks fail. He didn't. He saved them. And what they did was, in fact, he saved his elite friends. They printed 4.2 trillion dollars, and interest rates were kept artificially low. All right. Now, the dam was going to burst on this. You can't keep interest rates this low because if, if, if the working people are truly working and small businesses are thriving well, you know, the demand for money is going to go up, which means interest rates should go up naturally. But 
the people like Jared Kushner, the people like the real estate developers, the way they succeed is by keeping interest rates low. Okay. Well, how can you have vibrancy in the economy, which is going to drive interest rates up and vibrancy is brought in by working people and small businesses, not by huge corporations who many of them aren't really doing anything significant. So many of them are surviving on low interest rates and that's how they do their corporate bonds, right? Low debt. They need to keep interest rates low. That's how they're getting money for bogus businesses, which shouldn't even be around. So that was going to blow up and the elites recognized that working people had enough of Obama, blacks and whites, so they needed a new hero. So they dug up Trump. <laughs> Trump was their answer to manipulating the white working class. Mm. So any Trumper, by the way, I voted for Trump. I never voted in my life. First guy I voted for, gave him money, but I figured out his shtick after a while. But if you really think about it, the white working class in this country has always been abused by both wings of the establishment. So one wing of the establishment will give them a Democrat one day, they gave them Obama. And then when the white working class got upset, they went and dug up Trump. I mean, he's really a B or C grade actor. Okay. And his job was, and that's why if Trumpers believe elections are selections, you have to follow that all the way through. If elections are selections, then how did Trump get into office? He can't be exception. The elites needed him. They knew the trajectory that was happening in the United States was the average American only has $400 in their bank account. 80% of Americans only have 400 bucks in their bank account. And the amount of consolidation of power and profit and control that's occurred over the last 10 years is quite incredible. In fact, in the last under Trump, you know, 600 billionaires doubled their wealth while small businesses were going out of business. Okay. So, Trump was, Trump, in my view, Trump is a casting call that's made. He gets brought in. And what does he actually do? First of all, Obama saved big banks. Trump saved big pharma. Big pharma has been tanking. Yeah. This is what people don't yeah. know. And I was, a, again, the one that educated people on this because I know the pharmaceutical industry because Cytosol, you know, we know these guys, right? But the pharmaceutical industry has been tanking because pharmaceutical drug development is a ridiculous model. They just throw shit against the wall and if something works, they, they test it and it takes them 15 years and $5 billion. Well, that industry has been tanking. Pfizer's revenue fell by $25 billion from 2012 to 2020. Pfizer made more money in one year than they did in one quarter than they did in all the losses they incurred over the last 10 years, thanks to Trump. And they also, Trump, Pfizer donated to Trump's inauguration. Okay, so pharma's been tanking, high regulations, they're not putting out new product. Well, the jab, you don't need to, there's no regulations. You can't sue pharma companies. What an amazing market. You could put out whatever crap you want. There's no liability. Who else would not want to be in that kind of market? So Trump accelerated Operation Warp Speed. They created this thing called a pandemic, right? And what you have is pharma sales are, I mean, Pfizer did $45 billion in one year. And I calculated that two years before that or a year before that. But that you have to follow the money. So they make it vax and anti-vax. That's really not the issue. The real issue we should be talking about is how do we get real health? 
right? So it's frankly easy to be against vaccine mandate. That's not a revolutionary. That's not, you're not really, okay, big, big fucking deal. But what were you saying back in 2020? Did you call out Fauci? What did you do then? Because had we had a mass movement then, we could have stopped all this. So this is where what you have, you have opportunists. Rand Paul is now running a fire Fauci campaign. I didn't see him two years ago. We came up with that hashtag. We saw, we got 150,000 signatures and drove it to Trump and gave it to him. It's important in life to do the right thing at the right time. We have to judge our heroes and our leaders. What did they do at the time? Not after the fact. So people got to remove these, you know, illusion and stop being, you know, star fuckers and following, you know, Rogan or Neil Young or Trump. It's a mentality that Hollywood builds into people. These people are opportunists. If it's one day good to be against GMOs, Neil Young will do it. And another day to be against, against Vax, he'll do it. If it's one day good for Joe Rogan to be against GMOs and another day, uh, I mean, for GMOs, another day to say you're against vaccines, he'll do that. And if you notice, he's very clever at playing people. He played the game and then he apologized to Spotify and Spotify stock went up 12%. And Spotify is a $28 billion company. Joe Rogan is with the number one creative agency in the world, which, you know, supports all sorts of people who, who've been affiliations with pedophiles and so on, you know? So people need to get their head out of their ass. And for some people, it's going to be a long journey. And what we do at our movement is we hit hard over and over again. The issue is truth, freedom, and health. The issue is beyond the dialectic. The issue is going beyond vax and anti-vax, beyond mask and anti anti-mask, beyond Republican and Democrat, beyond left and right. A systems approach says, okay, in any issue, what is a real solution? It's not about pro-racism and anti-racism. The real, the real issues, we don't have infrastructure in the inner cities. No one wants to solve that because you solve that, racism goes away. Yeah. yeah. Okay. When it comes to the vax, anti-vax, it's about public health and the right medicine for the right time. When it's vax and anti-mask, sorry, mask and anti it's really about the mouth. You put a mask on your mouth, you're affecting your oral health of this. It increases, it reduces pH, right? Your, your mouth becomes more acidic. You're gonna get periodontal disease. Did you consider that when you thought about this intervention? You see? But more profoundly, are people talking about the right medicine for the right person? So our movement says on any issue, figure out what the real solution is and drive the discourse there. But when, as long as you're pro and anti, you can make money off that, you know? Now, so speaking, anyway, yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, speaking of Fauci, a lot of stuff has come to light about his uh, prior involvement decades ago with HIV. And there's a lot of conspiracy surrounding that. Um, so I wanted to sort of like see where you stand as far as that goes. Well, so 1993, you know, I was in Hawaii and um, I'd been given a book called The AIDS War by a guy called Duisburg. Okay. I don't know if you read this book. It's a pretty good book. And um, in my gut, I felt something never made sense that HIV causes AIDS. Let me tell you why. Robert Gallo, who is supposedly the guy who created the HIV test, had published a study 
showing the HIV virus eating a macrophage, essentially attacking the immune system, okay? I said, this doesn't make any sense. I said, our immune system has evolved over billions of years. Something that could attack the immune system didn't make any sense, okay? It's my first gut re reaction. So anyway, I read this book, I'm in, on, in Kauai, and I was staying with a friend of mine and his mom, and the book basically says, um, uh, by the way, Robert Gallo was um, Fauci's contemporary, who was exposed, you can go read in the, in, in the front page of the New York Times for serious scientific misconduct. He, he had bullshitted data, okay? Guess who came to his rescue? Fauci. All right. Now, in the analysis Duisberg did, he took the first 87 AIDS patients, and everyone should go read this. And he said, and by the way, Robert Duisberg had won, he he's one, was at that time one of the most esteemed scientists, had won every NIH award, was uh, nominated for the Nobel, Nobel Prize, Professor Berkeley for uh, discovering retroviruses, okay? So he's not some schlock. So Duisberg goes and looks at the first 87 AIDS patient cases, and he finds out, by the way, there's, there's, by the way, there's still not to this one day, one paper showing directly HIV causing AIDS, okay? And at that time also. So using Koch's hypothesis, it's called, okay? So Duisberg, um, however, found out there were nearly 200 papers 200 papers showing that amyl nitrates cause immunodeficiency. So what is AIDS? AIDS is when your T cell count goes below, let's say 70, which means your immune, entire immune system is compromised, okay? Now your immune system can get compromised in many ways, many, many ways, okay? So there are 200 papers written saying amyl nitrates, which are known as poppers, in that time in the gay community, people would take poppers to prolong orgasms, okay? And it was a fact in the 70s, you know, there was was a lot of, you know, uh, one gay person would not just have one partner, but many partners, okay? It was, that was the culture. Uh, and it's no discrimination, it's just what it was. So, so poppers were being heavily used. And there are 200 papers showing that amyl nitrates, because if you look at, it's a benzene ring or carcinogenic, and it can destroy your immune system. So if someone is doing massive hits of poppers, you're gonna destroy your immune system. So if Duisberg found was nearly 90% of those 87 AIDS cases were heavy users of poppers, okay? So they were destroying their immune system. It's like basically putting carcinogens in your body all day long. The second set of people Duisberg found were people who were IV drug users. It's not from the needles, it's the actual heroin and the drugs. You're taking so many drugs that yeah. it's destroying your immune system. And then the third group where people are getting transfusions. And again, people say, aha, you're transmitting the virus through the needle. No, what's happening is if someone as gets a blood transfusion, God forbid you have to get one, what does the hospital do? They give you immunosuppressive drugs. They have to suppress your immune system so you can get someone else's blood because you don't want your body to react to their blood. So they actually lower your immune system. If you get two blood transfusions in a short period of time, your body, you have to go into the IC because your immune system is that of an AIDS patient, okay? So the woman I was uh, staying with was a mother of my friend, right? 
she's the one who gave me the book. I said, and and she said she had AIDS. And I said, wow, so you're not taking amyl nitrates. You're not blood transfusion. So were you a drug user? She goes, yeah. She goes, Shiva, I was a heavy heroin addict. Okay. And in fact, there's a movie I think that came out with, what's his name, Matthew McConaughey, that talks, right? And the lifestyle that he lived was a very decadent lifestyle. And he had destroyed his immune system. And then he goes to, you know, there's a whole story of how he works his body back up. The point is when Duisburg came up with that, he was vilified. Every, how could you say this? You're anti-gay, you're against homosexuals, and you're against science. So overnight, this guy, who was one of the youngest guys to win the NIH award, one of the youngest tenured professors, right? <laughs> um, nominated for the Nobel Prize gets, you know, blacklisted, okay? My sister is an MD. When I brought this up, she goes, oh, you're an idiot. There's no way this could be true. And then over the last 10 years since then, they started calling it AIDS-related diseases. They, they, they were forced to separate HIV with AIDS because there's a lot of people who had HIV who didn't get AIDS. And in fact, the CDC statistics are kept so horribly that they actually have, when someone gets AIDS, let's say you don't eat well for 30 days and you take a lot of drugs and you're staying awake, you're gonna lower your immune system. It's obvious. You're gonna get all sorts of viruses, CMV, this virus, that virus, syphilis. Well, the CDC only was recording HIV always. Your body was infiltrated with many viruses. Yeah. Then they did a correlation. Oh, your T cell counts to 70. What virus? HIV. It's like nonsense. So the discussion moved to, again, the same old medical establishment model of associating a bug with a disease. And this has been the history of medicine over the last 100 years. As we got better and better at using microscopes and detection always associate a bug with the disease. Oh, you got scurvy, that must be because of hygiene. Oh, you have pellagra, that must be because of those Italians are carrying bugs, okay? And so on. So every time you had a problem, it must be a bug. And now with these high powered microscopes, you could always find something in your body that you could correlate to some disease you had, okay? So, now people are very clever. So, you know, there was, you know, AIDS became a massive industry, right? Nonprofit industry. AZT, which was a drug, which was a cancer drug, which was a failed drug under the Nixon administration was pulled to use for AIDS. And it killed a lot of people. A good friend of mine died of it. Okay. So the reality is we don't talk about strengthening the immune system. We don't talk about the things that destroy your immune system. We talk about always saying, this bug must cause this, therefore kill the bug. <laughs> There's so many bugs. You have 380 trillion viruses in your body right now. You have 60 trillion bacteria. You're a walking jungle of bugs. The issue is how do you build a resilient immune system? And that discourse is not taken because that leads to nutrition and health and you know, uh, learning how to not be sick, right? But as long as war and sickness, you profit from war and sickness, you're not going to teach people how to be healthy. So the real opportunity in the discussion about AIDS and HIV is to recognize that they're decoupled. 
you could have AIDS and you don't have HIV. You can cause AIDS in someone like that if you want to. Give them, you know, make sure they don't eat anything, eat crap all day, and take IV drugs all day. Don't get any sleep, party all night, and you're gonna you're gonna destroy your immune system, guaranteed. You're gonna get all sorts of bugs in you. Okay. So that's what people need to discuss. But if you discuss that, the establishments, particularly the big pharma industries, has gotten so good at branding a social cause to distract attention. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Many, many years ago, 1996, one of my companies, Echo Mail, was a company that could automatically analyze email and figure out crises that were emerging. I remember I had a meeting with a guy who was working for the number one PR agency called Burson Marsteller. Okay. Go look them up. They're the number one crisis management firm. And, you know, we went out to dinner and he was boasting about his great ways that he'd saved companies during crises. And I said, give me, give me your best example. He goes, Oh, Eli Lilly goes, I saved that company. Eli Lilly makes Prozac. Okay. He said when he met them, Eli Lilly's sales were going down and they were in a major crisis. No one was buying Prozac, their leading drug. I said, what did you do? He goes, well, first of all, I went in and I changed the branding of their company, not from like, we're a drug company. I forgot what it was like, but we helped the world. Then what he said they did was they went and started a nonprofit. Mm. Two nonprofits, I forget one of them. One of the nonprofits was to stop uh, women from being battered. Okay, sounds all good. And that nonprofit would take out full page ads in major newspapers and magazines saying, is your husband beating you? Do you have, do you know a friend whose husband is beating her? Make sure the husband is taking Prozac. Okay, so they position themselves as someone who's fighting for battered women. But what they really did was push Prozac. Okay, so there are people who say, oh, yeah, we stand for gay rights, you know. Let's get AZT out there, you know, we got to fight AIDS. They conflated AIDS with HIV very cleverly. And AZT killed a lot of people. And we never addressed the problem of boosting people's immunity. That was never discussed or lifestyle, right? So the, and the pharma companies, in fact, uh, made it that you were against gay people if you even brought that up. You see how clever they are? Or you're against battered women if you question people taking Prozac. Yeah. So, so it's intimidation because- it's called, it's called cause-related marketing. Many years ago, when I used to do consulting for a company called Gateway Computers, I met the guy. He was a professor of marketing <coughs> who founded this concept called cause-related marketing. It is where companies take on a cause, okay? Like we support the whales. They may not give a fuck about the whales. But they say they support the whales to distract attention from some other pollution that they're doing over here. They're causing, exactly. So they say, oh yeah, we got to support, we got to stop battered women, but they're pushing Prozac. Oh my God, we care for the gay community. You know, we got to stop AIDS. So this stuff is very, very cleverly done and people need to understand that, you know?
that sort of ties into something else that I wanted to discuss. So recently there's been this big push the past several years, this big marketing push I see on almost every social media app I go on. Um, and you know how that whole situation is. They want, they know what type of person you are. So they advertise things towards you prep. And I feel like I'm sure you're familiar with prep that they're pushing now because they say like, yeah, if you take it, there's a big chance. There's like a what? 90 something, almost 99% chance that you won't contract HIV, et cetera. But I, me and my friends have spoken about this for years. I, I mean, I never took it, but you have to take it, but yet you need blood work every three months because they need to monitor your kidneys. So, and there's been a lot of like discussion that it could lead to kidney damage long-term in conjunction with the fact that there's like a lot of people thinking that this is going to give birth to some super HIV or some super STD. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, if someone's telling you to take a, if basically they're trying to tell you to take a prophylactic, right? To prevent. Yeah. yeah. You know, go back to first principles. If you look at any system in the universe, systems are designed to be tested and come back stronger. Okay. The issue is you have a strong system. It's called resilience. And that requires, so when you take the immune system, the cardiovascular, I mean, take your cardiovascular system, you're supposed to work out. Suppose you don't exercise at all and you don't use your heart, your heart's going to weaken, right? If you don't work, your muscles are going to weaken. If you don't work your immune system, it's going to weaken itself. So you have to go back to first principles, Will. So once you hang your hat on these first principles, everything else is easy to figure out. So that's my answer to that. So if you're not strengthening that system and that's not the main focus, and you're trying to think I'm going to give a prophylactic to what? Is it really gonna strengthen the system, right? So that's really the question. What I wanna do is I just, uh, I just got a tech, I'm just gonna play. So this point of a systems approach to life, I'm gonna just play a quick video. I, uh, it'll help you understand where I'm coming from. Hold on, let me just play this here. We have allowed our country to be taken over from within and the end goal is you will have a homogenized world where we will become slaves because there is a condition among the elites that really thinks they're better than you deep down inside them that you don't deserve the freedoms you have they don't okay. this reality is what people need to wake up to and we need to all unite working people there's only one movement that can do that and that is the movement that we started creating here in Massachusetts, the movement for truth, freedom, and health. Look, I've been a student of politics since I was a four-year-old kid, studying revolutionary movements, left wing, right wing. There's a physics, there's a nuclear science to destroying the establishment. To build a bridge, you need to understand Newton's equation. You need to understand the laws of gravity. You need to understand Poisson's ratio. There is a way to build a revolution. And that's why I put this together. My goal is to train a army of truth, freedom, and health leaders we don't need followers like social media, we need leaders, but they, they need training because the educational system does not teach them history, nothing. So in three hours, that's what I've started doing. That's the solution. Wow. We gotta train people. First with understanding what a system is. The second is understanding the interconnection between truth, freedom, and health. Freedom is the ability to move freely, communicate freely, right? Talk freely. Without freedom, you cannot convert ideas, hypothesis into truth which is science. And without freedom, you can't really get to truth. And without truth, you make up fake problems and fake solutions, which means you destroy our health. 
And without health, which is the infrastructure of us and our body, you can't fight for freedom. Third concept is it has to be bottoms up, working people, people who work uniting. And what the right wing has done is whenever you say working people unite, that must be communist. Meanwhile, they've let the Democrats run unions, which suppress workers, completely corrupt. But when you look at the arc of American history, it's been when working people came up. We need to go local. Every solution I'm coming up with as a part of this movement, we're giving the science, which is the truth, and then we tell people what they can do on the ground. Like with election fraud, you don't need to wait for some lawyer. Our goal is to train people, Dave, to go local, to go local, to go local, fight locally. Forget lawyers, forget politicians, forget celebrities. You've got to learn politics, and there is a science to it. They lock us down, we should be ready to shut them down. And the fourth part of this principle is a not so obvious establishment. So when you look at a system, there's always something that disturbs you from getting to your goal. Well, the biggest disturbance is a not so obvious establishment, which are those people who claim they're for you on the left and the right. The Al Sharptons who tell black people I'm for you. The Tucker Carlson's. Do you think any true anti-establishment person will ever be on Fox or CNN? I don't think so. They both mislead working people back into the establishment without this solid understanding of political physics and theory, you're screwed. You're going to follow on the, the left wing, Bernie Sanders, oh, he said something, or Robert Kennedy, scumbags. Or you're going to follow, you know, some right wing talk show host. They're not going to lead us to liberation. It's us. And that political physics, it's a nuclear science of change. Bottoms up. We have to organize to understand that there is people who talk a good game and then look at what they actually do, left and right. I'm sorry, Sean Hannity may say some good things, but I don't see the urgency in his voice to get something done, and it can only come when you weaponize yourself with the right knowledge. You need to be able to identify a rat. You know, Christ didn't go after the Romans, right? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who screwed him up, his own quote-unquote people. And that's where we're at. So these four concepts I've built into a curriculum. People can go to bashiva.com, and it's an educational program. We need to train people in political theory. You need to have physics, and I've created that curriculum. People need to get educated. We need to get educated fast. And within a half an hour, an hour, I can teach people. Two years of MIT control systems, I teach people those concepts. Then I apply it, anyone can understand it. And then you say, oh, I gotta build a bottoms up movement. They have to get politically astute, and then they have to go locally and act, not sit there on social media. They have to act locally, defy locally, be, do civil obedience locally, but with knowledge on how to build a movement. And the Senate campaigns expanded to the movement for truth, freedom, and health, and they can find it on V as in Victor A. Shiva, vashiva.com, so people can sign in. They can get access to a bunch of videos. If they want to take a course and become a truth, freedom, health leader, I offer a full scholarship there. But we want people to make a commitment that they'll study, that they'll get certified, that they'll go do activities on the ground. So go to VA Shiva, Victory America Shiva, VAShiva.com. Anyway, the reason I want to play that video is that that video sort of in a very concise way sort of uh, I guess summarizes where we're at and why the only way out of this will is for people to get educated. And um, so people, we want to change the world. We need to recognize that you can sort of 
um, you know, meander around this process, make a lot of mistakes, or there is a science to doing this, no different than a science to building anything. And that knowledge, that science of systems, those in power actually learn this Kennedy School of Government, Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, right? The elites have their think tank institutions. They train people in the science of systems. And that's why they're able to map out like a chess move 20 steps ahead. And so when ordinary working people see all this stuff occur or everyday people, they're trying to, they're all confused what the hell's going on. But all this, these, these points were mapped out because it's the science of systems. And if people don't b believe me on this, there's an organization called the Democracy Fund started by a guy called Pierre Omidyar, who's a guy who started eBay, multi-billionaire. And he funds a lot of the neoliberals. By the way, there's a difference between liberal, classical liberalism and what you call today neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is essentially fascism, you know? Yeah. Um, covered in some statements that you want to help people or something, right? But Democracy Fund is a neoliberal organization. If you go to the site, it says, you know, it's really important to learn systems thinking. Jay Forrester, one of my mentors, who is known as one of the fathers of system science, he wanted to teach systems thinking at the kindergarten age. So we're in a world now of complex systems. And if people don't understand system science, they're never really going to be able to, it's like the blind men looking at the pieces of the elephant. They don't see the whole elephant. So people are never going to really understand what to do in a situation. They won't be able to see things where they're going, where the hockey puck's actually going. That's why, you know, our movement, I was able to call out Fauci long time. You know, you can see this stuff two years ahead, three years ahead. And in a world that we're in now, we need to be able to do that if we're gonna be successful. And then you need to mobilize people on that, not two years later. It's too late. Everyone has gotten the vax and then it's like, oh, well now it's trendy, so I'll hop on it. What's that? Now you'll now you be for the vax. Well, now it's trendy to be for the vax mandate, against the vax mandates. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So it's like, it's like, I feel like Joe Rogan and all these people, I think it's great that they are speaking out. Don't get me wrong, but it's sort of like, well, mm. no, it isn't. This is why we, they, to me, they have to be attacked. Let me tell you why. Sam Tripoli had me on a show, what, a year ago and his other friend were Joe's friends. And they said, oh my God, we got to get Dr. Shiva on. Joe will never put someone like me on and nor will I ever go on a show after what I figured him out. Cause he is what I call your true scumbag. It is not the Fauci's that destroy the world. It is the Joe Rogan's because they know how to play people. They know how to make people think they're fighting for them. Gandhi, another big scumbag. He destroyed the movement for independence in India. He was parachuted in to act like as though he was a saint. And he ensured that the transfer of power took place from the Indian elites, I mean, to the British elites, to the Indian elites. And he suffocated the natural revolutionary movements in India. That is how sophisticated Madison Avenue has become. If anyone is a true, true, true threat to the establishment, they're not going to be part of a $28.5 billion industry called Spotify. And anyone who wants to suck up to these entertainers and defend them and say, oh, my God, Rogan's against Rogan's against Neil Young. You're an idiot. You've already been brought into the, the you've already part of the dialectic you're screwed because you think rogan is your fighter rogan's not your fighter rogan's a guy who's doing crazy spectacle sports with people eating maggots and you know he's just an entertainer yeah so this is a level of consciousness 
the elites want people to be at a, you know, at a subhuman state of consciousness. So, and then they want to give them entertainers to make them think the entertainers are their heroes. Trump, Obama, Gandhi, and they always, even Martin Luther King, okay? They give people good speeches, put them in robes, you know, I mean, it's all theater. It's theater. And so the reason, you know, the purpose of our movement for truth, freedom and health is to teach people how to recognize the not so obvious establishment because the not so obvious establishment is the most powerful weapon that the establishment uses because they know people are going to get angry and they're going to come up. They know this in the election systems integrity movement. They had a bunch of grifters talk all sorts of bullshit that had nothing to do with the real issues. So you don't focus on the real issues. The not so obvious establishment exists to distract people like, you know, showing a shiny thing to a monkey. So people have to make up their minds. Do they want to be subhumans or do they want to be human beings? And if they want to be human beings, they have to have courage. They have to let go of all of the nonsense that the establishment has continually plastered them with brainwashing. You know, celebrities are supposed to be your heroes. It's just, you know, you go to a country like China. It's not I support the, you know, their members of their government are engineers, scientists. Yeah. They see a thousand year plan. Our politicians can't even see one foot ahead. You know, Trump didn't even know where Finland was. He thought Finland was part of Russia. Okay. So you have a lot of stupidity. And in the midst of all this information, in the midst of the fact that people can, within, you know, a few clicks can get access to information, you also have the reverse going on, the mass stupidity of people following people like Rogan. Yeah. And I just think it's it's ironic because, so using TikTok as an example, it's banned in China, but yet it's the most popular app here. Yeah. And it's sort of, and it's sort of like, well, why would it be banned there? But yet it's here. And I, and people's attention spans are already extremely short. And I feel like it just caters to, you know, diminishing people's intellect. Yeah. It's, it's very well engineered. But that's why they create the, the, they want Biden versus Trump. Then maybe if that doesn't work from an entertainment show, it'll be Trump versus Hillary, right? So it's, it's, it's the, Gore Vidal said it that polit- politicians are just uglier actors. You know, that's all he said. It's just, a, it's a very close knit industry. And the only way out of this, as I said in that video, is to build a bottoms up movement. And that means you have to get educated. That means you have to learn the science of systems. Well, right now, as far as I know, there's only one movement in the world I can do. That. It's our movement for truth, freedom, and health. If there was some other movement, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be vacationing. I'd be doing other things. But there is no other movement. And it is the only solution. And we put together that in a framework that I hope everyone takes advantage of. And, you know, um, so for people, you know, where I grew up in New Jersey or I grew up in India, working class people, it is ultimately working people who get screwed. If you look at what's going on in Ukraine right now, you know, um, the reality is that, you know, it's, it's imagine a big mobster versus a small thug. Okay. So the big mobster, here's the United States and, and British imperialism. And in 1990, there was an agreement struck between, um, you know, Russia and the United States that NATO would not take one inch to the East. Okay, 
And they, there's no even reason for NATO anymore, okay? NATO has essentially become an interventionist power of the United States and British imperialism. So anyway, right after they signed that agreement, immediately NATO went into East Germany. And Gorbachev's like, wait a minute, what did you? What are you guys doing? He goes, and the United States said, oh, well, we didn't. that was a verbal agreement. It wasn't a written agreement, okay? So you've had NATO pushing more and more and more east, okay? And, and the British imperialism is very good at always making everyone else to seem like mongrels and villains and you know crazy people. They did this in World War I against Kaiser Wilhelm. They made him look like he was some crazy guy who wanted to take over the world, as though Britain didn't. But he was just essentially the new thug. He was a new bully coming up on the block, but a small one. So Britain is a big bully. They don't even want small bullies. They had to wipe him out. So Putin may be a small bully, but it was clear, according to the discussions, that you will never, you know, NATO is not supposed to go and encroach on Ukraine and fuck around with them, right? So the Black Sea is one of the most important strategic areas. That's how Russia gets out. You know, they go through the Straits of Bosphorus. So... And by the way, Crimeans have always felt part of Russia. Even the Poles, are 97% of Crimeans want to be part of Russia. And the eastern part of Ukraine has been seeking its own independence, the Donbass region, for years, since 2014. After the United States under Obama put in a right-wing Nazi-like guy to run the place, Ukraine. So obviously the people on the eastern part said, wait a minute, we don't want these neo-Nazis here. So, and they were culturally very different and they had wanted their own independent place. Minsk, the Minsk two agreements were supposed to help resolve that, which was, okay, well, we'll give you a separate state within Ukraine. Ukraine will still be a country, autonomous, but the United States and Britain never pushed Ukraine to resolve this. They almost wanted to goad. I mean, imagine if China moved, uh, did an agreement with Mexico or, Canada tomorrow to become part of the, uh, you know, one of their organizations, you know? So this is, this is incentivized because British and U.S. imperialism want to have, they want to make money off of this. And ultimately, who gets screwed are the Russian working people, the Ukrainian working people, the British working people, the American working, because we're the ones who are sent to fight the wars of the elites. I don't think Jeff Bezos will be fighting this war or his kids. I don't think Elon Musk's kids will be fighting this war, but it will be the kids of everyday working people. So it's really, really time that people get their head out of their ass and realize it's not about Ukraine. I mean, Zelensky is an actor who is a comedian who's a moron, okay? He doesn't give a damn about his own people, really. You know, he's a puppet of British imperialism and US imperialism. And what is being teed up right now is to create the theater. This guy was an actor. So everyone will say, yeah, definitely Ukraine should become part of the EU. Ukraine should get weapons from NATO. And that's basically going to start World War III at that point. So everything is needs to be understood within the context of working people uniting. The establishment does not want the working people of Russia, the working people of Britain, the working people of Ukraine, the Donbass, India, America uniting. They always want to keep us divided and ruled. That is the British Empire model, which has not changed for 300 years. And we're seeing that in every step of the way. Anyway, I hope this was valuable.
Um, I have to, if there's one last question, I have to, um, I have, I, I, I have a appointment coming up like now, but go ahead. Yeah, this conversation has been great. Everything you've said has been very educational and thank you for, thank you for your time today. Um, if I had to choose one more question, it might be a little bit of a twofer. So, um, recently there was this article about this new form of HIV. Do you feel like uh, it is super HIV? One, do you feel like that has anything to do with the vaccine situation? And that aside, all things related to vaccines, do you feel like things like PrEP being so promoted um, as being, gives this invincibility invincibility complex, and that is why you're seeing all these other STDs uh, skyrocket? Yeah, I mean, look, the idea has been to outsource our health to big pharma. That's what this is really about, right? Yeah. Just think about it. And when every anything can be branded as a vaccine, mRNA is really not a vaccine. Now you get the liability protection of the 1986 Vaccine National Injury Program, which the Kennedys passed, okay? We're involved in. So what you see is pharma companies have been going down. They're looking for a new way to resuscitate their ailing trillion dollar industry. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Period. And I've been talking about this since 2003. If you look at the old Cytosol presentation, where we always have this curve with pharmaceutical companies, their revenue going down. And we thought we could help them by using Cytosol so they didn't kill animals. They could figure out stuff that did not work before they spent billions of dollars, but they're on a different locomotive train, right? So the key point I can ask is follow the money on this. And if you follow the money, it's about big pharma wanting you to outsource your health with this new, you know, mRNA thing or prep or whatever it is, right? So ultimately you're outsourcing your health. You're not focused on boosting your immune system or focusing on figuring out how your body works as a system. And once they have you in that cycle, now they can upsell you, cross sell you. They can sell you all sorts of products. It's like you're in their, you're in their uh, Amazon cart. And you're going to check this out. They're going to check this. You're going to buy this. You know, that's what this is about. I agree. <laughs> All right. I agree. Um, thank you again. And you're welcome. It's well, going to be a great podcast, and it's going to transcribe into a great interview. And um, I'll keep you and the team in the loop with everything. And then, being as we are on camera, if we could get one quick screenshot. Yeah. Yeah. Do you okay. want me to hold on? You can get a better, I mean, you can get stuff from Manju if you want, or or uh, Crystal if you want. Oops. What did I do here? Sorry about that. Oh, I see, I have my share going on, stop. Okay, so I'm gonna do like one quick uh, photo once it's together. Um, could you do the side-by-side -side thing? I don't know how to do that. Oh, you want the side-by-side? -side? Okay, everyone. Let yeah. me uh, let me just say, let me let, first of all, let me let everyone say goodbye. By the way, everyone, uh, this uh, this is, this interview will be on uh, Out, right? In yes, Out, it'll be available in Out, Out in Jersey Magazine. It's distributed New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, um, Connecticut, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. But you could read it on outinjersey.net. And then the audio um, version will be available on my podcast, Will Love Listen. Uh, three words, Will Love Listen. It's on Spotify as well as iTunes and iHeartRadio. Okay. Well, let me just say goodbye. So by the way, everyone, I'll be. Uh, we can do this. By the way, everyone, this is Dr. Shiva Idre. I hope this is valuable. 
Uh, we went from looking at the invention of email to talking about Cytosol, and we talked about a bunch of topics. But I will be back tomorrow. We'll be doing a discussion on a new uh, research project we just finished out of the Open Science Institute. Be well, uh, be the light. Thank you. One second. And...